Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. We interview artists, scholars, and collectors about ideas and art that has inspired them and influenced LDS culture. This week, we do an interview with the internationally award-winning sculptor, Tyson Snow. He talks to us about his uh, path to becoming an artist and the work that he's doing now. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Tyson Snow, it is a huge privilege to have you here. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So you have been in Scottsdale for several months now. Just came back to Utah. You're based in Utah. And that's not recent either. I mean, that's that's fairly recent either to, as well, right? Yes. But, but when we'll get to that. But I want to start off at the end point rather than the beginning point. All right. Scottsdale, you've got to tell us what this event is that you were part of and 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 what the nature of it is because it's an invitational correct right yeah and you were there for how long it's a three-month show okay it's a solid three months it's a seven day a week event for three solid months so it's pretty brutal i don't know how you can sustain that level of energy because it's maybe you have repeat people come but for the most part you've got to be on all the time it's seven days a week for Seven weeks? It's, uh, it's um, uh, so three months. It was from January oh, to sorry. March. Oh, my heavens. Yes, yeah, so I'm not sure how many weeks that is. So how many artists are, are, are at this event? There are a hundred. There are a hundred. And they yeah. kind of, do they create a tent city or are you in a big center, a conference center? It's, it's kind of a tent. It's not a tent city, but it's one large event tent. Scottsdale is one of undisputably the most important areas for art buying. And so people are flying in on private jets. They're coming to see these works. Why did you want... What is the official title of the event, by the way? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, so the official title is The Celebration of Fine Art. And they've been in operation for almost 30 years. And uh, so there, there's, kind of, there's a long line of artists who want to be a part of this. And once you're in, um, that's a big deal. And it's something you do as a repeat uh, uh, event. But it's probably fair to say that this audience is... Um, it's not the one that you have here locally, but you're you're somebody who's known nationally, internationally. You've won a lot of contests. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about that. You've been educated at some world class at a world class school. Um, what was this audience like? What were they? What What was it like talking to these people about your work? Uh, you know, it was interesting for for me. It wasn't something that I had done. It, it had been a while since I'd been on a platform like that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the buyers, the, a lot of the people that came through were qualified, whether they appeared to be or not. Uh, what do you mean them, by that? A lot of people in yoga pants and yeah, exercise just outfits? Sweats, right. Yeah. I mean, so they walk in very unassuming looking, and yet you find out along the way that they're heading back to their private jet to fly home type thing. So, so it's a pretty interesting crowd of people. Most of them are repeat buyers, and I actually ended up seeing a lot of the same faces throughout the show. There's this old marketing uh, wisdom, which is actually borne out by research, that before someone makes a purchasing decision, they usually have seven experiences with whatever it is. So if you're buying a truck, if you're joining a church, if you are marrying somebody, (laughs) there's a a seven-time experience. Yeah. So when you went here, this is your first time for a lot of people, and you saw some people multiple times. What were the conversations like? What were they most interested in? Was it the individual pieces? Were they check smelling you and checking you out? What was it? 
Yeah, so, well, a combination of all it really depends on the type of person you're dealing with. Uh, different buyers are interested in different things. Sometimes they're interested in the artists themselves and the collectability of them. Uh, others specifically in the work where they have an emotional response to a, an individual piece. I had several people talk to me first, first of all, about whether or not it was my first year or not uh, and what, collection, what collections I might be in, you know, kind of oh, sussing me out as to whether or not that they should invest in me. That's such an interesting conversation. Pretty interesting. So, in fact, there was you. It's a little patronizing. You get into these. The, the you have people walk in and say, talk to you for a while, and then they say, "Well, now you don't look too familiar." I did we see you last year, or is this your first year? Oh my heavens! No, no, this is my. It's my first. Uh, but then I would try to explain. I'm I'm new to the show, but I'm certainly not new to the art scene. You know, in general. But they still would say things like, well, yeah, we're going we're gonna to keep an eye on you or we'll see you next year type thing. So, so it's interesting. The people that come to this show have this sort of uh, outlook that um, if, you're, if you have a mainstay with a show, then you're successful enough to, to collect. It's so interesting to me that as an artist who um, is, has done monuments that's, of, uh, that, that's won international contests, that has gone to a world-class school, that their basis for reputability is their your relationship with the celebration event, mm-hmm. which they which to them is unimpeachable, right? Because they've had that's what they have the relationship with, not with these other things. It's almost as if the, the you could say this about a lot of things, but that all. All art purchasing is so specific to a tribe or community that that once you're inducted into that tribe, That's exactly you still it. have to build up credibility within it. That's exactly it. And How for the most part, I think it's more about the relationship that you build with them over time. So, so there are people that have been coming to that show for almost as the you know the existence of the show itself. Some people yeah. 15, 20 years in a row, they don't miss it. They don't miss the show, and they they typically buy from the artists that they had collected from the previous year. Or they sometimes they'll make a beeline straight for the painter that they bought from. Well, the year I, I, w- I was just reading a, um, a, a a study that was put out by Tefaf, which is based in Maastricht. They're the ones who run a major fair every year. That's a mix of old masters and and uh, contemporary art. And one of the statistics they put out is that eighty um, percent of the purchasers. Who who come to their their uh, their annual event? They have purchased before at the event, and that that ninety percent of their art purchases happen in a year of that individual who buys at the event at the event. Mm-hmm. And so they budget. So so somebody who comes to Tefaf to the Maastricht show, or comes to celebration. They're coming to spend money explicitly. They know they're going to do it. So the choice is once they get there. Which who am I going to spend it on? Mm-hmm. And 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 they've got to make a decision at that event of what they're going to do. Now I know this isn't necessarily what we what you thought I was going to talk about, or what I thought I was going to talk about <laughs> as we sat down. Uh, we'll back up into your to to your no uh, education and how you got into your field. Um, but this to me is one of the questions that all artists have to answer, which is where do you stake your claim? Is your market? Because to set out a time from January to March, seven days a week, that's a third of your year, almost. Not mm-hmm. a third, but a quarter yeah. of your year. Yeah, absolutely. That you set aside 
to invest in a community that you're going to develop a reputation with and they're going to become your future buyers. And it could be 30 years from now, you are, you're the, the you're not, you're now the old fish in that, that pond and not the new fish. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you're, you probably don't know exactly how you feel about it. It's still processing. Would that be? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it went well enough for me, enough positive feedback that I've signed up for the, for next year money down and all of that kind of good stuff because it really is a building process we'll come back to it because i want to talk about how those conversations and relationships affect potentially could affect the direction of your art yeah but first let's talk about how you got to where you are now okay so where are you from originally i am well i was born in utah Okay. But uh, my family moved to Ohio when I was young. So, so do you remember Utah growing up? You know, and where I were do you born? Bits and pieces. Um, I I think like um, you know, it was so long ago. Yeah. So so it wasn't it wasn't a significant part of your no, your biography I, at all. I think um, you know, obviously, I think it has a a place in my my. Uh, I mean, we're all products of our of our kind of upbringing yeah. and surroundings. So it certainly. It certainly is a part of me, and yet I moved away at a young enough age that when I came back to visit, I was pretty well lost, didn't really feel at home. Yeah. Lots of things had changed. Streets that were once a long street or You're hills like, that were Jello. really hollow. What's Jello? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you came back. Yeah, streets were shorter. <laughs> the hills that were huge were no longer that big. Yeah. And so it was, uh, so it was quite, a, quite an interesting experience to come back to visit. Did you, where, where in Ohio did you grow up then? Uh, I was in Worcester, Ohio. Where's Worcester? Worcester is kind of in the Akron, Canton area. Okay. Uh, it's Amish country. So it's really? kind of a neat place to be. Yeah. Why did your parents move there? Here in this state, my father was a, he was a, um, assistant superintendent at the, the training school in, that's now across the street from the Tempanogos Temple. Okay. Uh, what kind for, of it's a de, it's a developmental center for like the mentally re- retarded. Okay, and I know there's another PR. There's a better PR word. I think they is that the term indi- your father used growing up? Because yes. that was the term that was used in his time. Correct. Interesting. Now I think the term is individuals or <laughs> something like that. Mentally disabled people of of yeah. mental disability yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So so from that point, uh, he got he he basically was offered a job to move from assistant superintendent to the superintendent and a place called Worcester you know that's you know my my mother um was her education was in dealing with people who had mental disabilities Hmm. and she did it through um uh for for high school students and then she worked she parlayed that into a career working in retirement centers with people who had their faculties reduced either through dementia or through alzheimer's but my mother was this kind of person who was perfectly tailored to it she was very caring, very service-oriented. Um, and I, I, was your father, was this something that he he fell into a career? Was this na- his nature? Was this what he was like at yes, home? Yes, yes, yes. Very giving, very kind. Uh, anytime someone needs something, he was out the door. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so I think in that, with that profession, he started out at the bottom working directly with individuals and their development um, and then worked his way up to administration. And then yeah. from administration in Ohio, worked up to a position where he was uh, uh, kind of a, go- a government official that was over several facilities hmm. instead of just just over one. What was your what, what was your mom's background? Uh, well, she's she's a musician, hmm. uh, musical, 
but uh, gave a lot of that, put, put that in the back seat to have kids and to uh. raise us. And she's now picking back up on that and actually having some good success there, publishing music and really. To the so she's a composer. Uh huh. Really? Yeah. Did you grow? Up, how many kids were there? Four. So four of us. I'm Did she turn four. you into a quartet? <laughs> no, I think she. She, if if it was possible, she would have. Uh, I think I ended up becoming probably the most the most musical or doing most with music. Really? So what did I you do? do? I didn't know. Well, that. I play and sing. I I often get asked to sing solos and state conference and funerals and things like that. Really? And I, I play the guitar and yeah. So not terror, not it's certainly not my profession. Tyson, triple threat. You can yeah. probably dance too, yeah. right? It's a problem. I have some coordination, but so no, you got some no dance training. dance singing and you can you can play. I guess. Yeah. That's fantastic. So yeah. when you you grew up there and where do you fit into your family birth order by the way? Uh, I'm the second to the oldest. Okay. So one older and two younger than myself. So there really is kind of there, there's an appreciation for the arts. Uh, absolutely in your family that you yeah. grew up with but Amish country mm-hmm. um and Ohio I mean there's this there's this map that they that it's famous it was made famous by the New Yorker of the perspective of somebody living in New York as a map of the United States uh-huh. so you have you have on one side of it taking up two-thirds of the space New York and New Jersey and then Florida at the very bottom then you have a a, a a large strip that's lo- that's California that's on the other side, and then in between you have this thing that says Midwest Ohio that's just basically like <laughs> a strip in between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. So Ohio from from, uh, and I have friends who grew up in Ohio. I think a mutual friend of ours, Bo Swanson, um, who is Columbus, Ohio, and there really is. It seems like for a lot of people that is where the East ends, even though it's mm-hmm. not exactly the East. A lot of educated affluent people um, uh, um, living in Ohio. Right. Um, some great museums in, in Cleveland. And and uh, and uh, was that part of your growing up? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, by, by what, you know, along the way it happened to be. Um, I just think because I naturally was interested in, in artistic things, I sort of, I sought those things out on my own. Yeah. So I ended up taking a trip to the Cleveland Museum, probably a a handful of times just with a, a high school buddy of mine. Interesting. How old were you when you, do you remember your first artworks and what you were making? I think one of the first, I ended up doing a pencil sketch of President Kimball. Was it, it was and from a photograph? It must have been, yeah, yeah. And I drew it from a photo. Um, I think I was probably five or six. Wow. I, I believe, maybe seven. And um, anyway, my parents saw it and and immediately saw a likeness, hmm. but uh, always drawing. Always had a pencil in my hand. You know, we'd get into trouble drawing caricatures of the teachers inside the textbook. You know, covers and things like the textbooks that we would leave in the class at the end yeah. of the year. Um, so, do you go from do you, do you? Is it something that you think from a very early age? Oh yeah, I'm going to be an artist. This is what I'm going to do. And you go into it in high school, you take it very seriously, or is it something that comes later? I, well, I suppose everyone has their own sort of story, but yeah. it was like that for me. I always, I always knew I wanted to have something to do with the, with the creative, in the creative field. Were you drawn um, to a particular kind of art? Was it, was it, uh, I mean, was it always portraiture or was it something else? No, it was some, I was always interested in fantasy type things you know monsters and aliens and star wars and all of those types of things but you do, do you do anything with that in the beginning do you end up going into because that is 
for a lot of people, that means they end up going to college and they studying in an illustration program. They learn computer programming and they do, yeah. they, they, they go work for Pixar or something right, like right. that, right? Well, that was my intention. So in, in high school, they had uh, um, an art rep come in and, you know, they're trying to get kids to come to the, the Art Institute in Pittsburgh, um, which I, I don't, it's probably not world renowned, but, you know, it's a, I wouldn't consider it that. I, I've had I've had experiences with world-renowned artists in terms of my like fine art education. Um, there were a number of people who left from the Art Students League of New York to found the Pittsburgh School, and there were also several that had studied in France. I mean, I is that consider right? it okay. I consider it a serious academy with a great background. There were a lot of artists that came out of there. Yeah, they're, they're definitely probably like more in the illustration. Uh, yeah, and maybe it's just you're just one of these people who fell victim to the idea that a prophet isn't a prophet in their own land, and you just think. Maybe Pittsburgh wasn't as cool as you think it is, but I think I, it's pretty dang cool. I loved it, actually. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing city to live in. I really, really enjoyed it there. Yeah. Uh, I just wasn't so sure about the education itself. It seemed to me, anyway, that there were promises made that by them of, about success beyond school that, that were, was a... Well, it, it wasn't the, as let, easy as... Let's test that out a little bit. So you yeah. go mm. there with the expectation... And, and, and this is you going out of high school. You go to the Fine Art Academy in Pittsburgh. Well, so right. no, it's not. It's not a fine art academy. It's an art institute. Art institute. So they focus more on um, graphic design, industrial okay. design. So right. I ended up getting into industrial design. We are talking know. about the same place, though. I just called it. Are we? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 we are talking. About so I ended up getting into doing what I thought I always wanted to do, and that was creature design, building animatronic and robotic puppets. Interesting. So mold making, uh, movie magic type type things, sculpting uh, movie appliances for special effects makeup. And, and that sort of thing. So I so, ended up with a with a degree in industrial design. So you're not work. You're not drawing at this point, except for the drafts pro, draft, drafting process of developing these kinds of exactly. Boards. And what kind of career do you want to have? What do you want to do? Well, initially, I just thought it would be neat to get into the movie industry. Yeah. Yeah. Work with uh, with I don't know industrial light and magic or you know some of those. Was that the promise of the education too? They, they were saying, okay, you're gonna you're gonna work here, you're gonna do this. And some of our graduates have gone on to work for exactly. X companies. Yeah. And really what it turns out to be is that uh, it's a very difficult industry to be in and that uh, you can work on a very large project and most of the time it's kind of a, a project by project basis. And then you're back on the street beating the bushes looking for more work. So I thought I initially went in there because growing up I'd heard of the this term you know, starving artist. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to be one of those. So I really thought the only way to make a living at this was to, to work for, you know, an industry, work for a company, work for you know, one of those uh, things. So, um, so I ended up going that route. But at the end of the day, it just, it didn't, um, it didn't pan out. I ended up doing some neat things. I was the head illustrator for a TV show that was an up and coming, like a PBS show. Hmm. Um, uh, the people, a lot of the people that were working on Mr. Rogers were now like working on this show. Hmm. Um, but they had issues with fundraising and things like that. And it sort of things fell through, uh, ended up working, doing a kind of a, a museum film with, uh, the Jim Henson people, other puppeteers. It was like a, a pup. It was a, a it was a, one of those museum videos made specifically for museums around the world that would talk about the history of puppets and one of the puppets they wanted to bring onto this into this venue was one from an up and coming show, which was happened to be the one I worked on. So we spent the day with the Henson people, and and that those hmm. were the that was the kind of thing that I wanted to be getting into. 
Interesting. Yeah. So what what changed? What happened? I think um, I don't know. I think it was just. Uh, how old are you at this point, by the way? Uh, like 20, 22, 23. You're still young. So young, young married, and uh, just decided. And it's you're not- and, and you're young and married. So on some level, you're looking for. You're looking for something practical. I consistency, which right? is why I went to the school in the first place, right? Because a starving artist is not going not gonna to cut it. Not gonna. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what I found out was in that industry, it's the same as in the fine art industry. And I, after leaving school, I had probably a page of, you know, three pages of lists of, of companies and movie companies that I'd called. And I just nothing, nothing turned up, nothing worked out. So I ended up turning my hand back to fine art. Hmm. And I was living in Pittsburgh at the time. It was really interesting because we, I, I went to visit Arizona. My brother was living there, married a girl from there. And aunt and uncle took me to the, the gallery district. And I'd never been to a, a gallery district before. And where were you in Arizona? So that was in, the, well, it was in Scottsdale. Yeah, so the huge art center. Yeah. Especially Western art. And there's a lot of sculptors who play very well there. But it's, it's mainly um, Western themed. Right, a lot of it is, yeah. yeah. I ended up uh, visiting this the contemporary district, which which wasn't kind of had a mix of interesting of modern art and and some some uh, more traditional traditional art that wasn't of an of a Western. Theme. So so what happens next? So that's why I we go to this wedding. I see this thing. I go go back home and say to my wife, uh, "We're going to move to Arizona." Thinking kind of like in the New York sense, you know, if we can make if I can make it there in a gallery, then I can make it. Yeah, I could make it anywhere. So, still no, nothing lined up. No work, no job, no money, and just said yeah. to her, "Hey, let's do this. Let's pack up a truck and drive there. We'll figure it out. If I have to drive a, a street sweeper when we get there, I'll do that, and we'll figure this out." Jeez, so That's two a babies. Yeah, two babies in the back of the van or in the back of the car, and uh, <laughs> in the back of the truck. We threw them in the yeah. moving truck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd go and pack them in. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad. So. So we, we did it. We moved. And the day before I left, I was leaving a, a church meeting, bumped into a guy. We were in a new area, so we didn't know this ward very well. Bumped into one of the, the gentlemen there, and he said, oh, we'll see you next week. And I said, no, actually, we're on our way out the door. I said, actually, you won't see us next week. We're moving. We'll be gone. And he said, oh, where are you going? I said, well, uh, we're moving to, to Arizona. I'm going to try and do a fine art there. And he said, I have a friend that owns a gallery in Scottsdale. Jeez. So he made that connection for me. I ended up, after a time, getting uh, working in the gallery itself for a couple of years and then creating works that, that and eventually started, that hung in, the sh- hung in the gallery and started selling. And then I did a one-man show and sold that out, and, and it kind of went from there. So what are the first works you're creating? <clears throat> they were a continuation of things that I had started in, Pittsburgh, there were um, ethnic portraits, so portraits of African, uh, you know, uh, the Himba in Namibia specifically, but they were done with white, a blackboard, uh, starting with a black substrate and working with a white pencil. So I've I began to I've began to call them like reverse drawings because it's sort of the reverse of what's the traditional, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's almost as if you're working on an etching plate and you're. Mm-hmm. And you, you've got to do the, you got to work with the negative space first. Right. Yeah. Why African portraits? Well, uh, I guess that's a continuation of portraits I started on my mission in Australia of Aborigines. 
Because really? I just have the fascination of with different people and cultures and um, just a great appreciation, I guess, for all people. And I just thought, these are kind of kind of neat people. I'm going to draw them. So I started doing that. But then I, I married my my wife is from South Africa. Yeah. So it was just kind of naturally went from one continent to another. And that that particular medium lends itself very nicely to. Yeah, it's people, people with dark of color skin. and people outside with really harsh sunlight it has really kind of a beautiful effect. So I guess, you know, this this idea that you're you're going from industrial design mm-hmm. to fine art and you're doing a subject that I don't know if it seems like to you it seems natural because you're working from aborigines to to then Africans and you've got some connection through through through, through your wife at the time through mm-hmm. through all that. How was how did you um, move to sculpture? Because because like before I say anything, before yeah. you answer, uh-huh. sculpture is one of the least intuitive things to just jump into. Because for a lot of people who have a visual sense and the ability to create things with their hands, um, sculpture requires a kind of technical understanding and knowledge that may have some relationship with your industrial design background, but it's really material heavy. Mm. How did you make that jump? And when did you make that jump? I, I don't know that I made a jump. I think it was always there. Really? Yeah. I, I, in fact, in high school, my first experience with it was to, I mixed up plaster, poured it into a, a popcorn bucket, those, those holiday buckets. Yeah. Let it set up, broke the bucket off, and I threw a blanket. Didn't have a workspace. Didn't have any chisels or anything. Someone gave me a really cheap set of these little like wood chisels. Yeah, handheld, threw everything on the ground. I just put a blanket down and lay next to this block and just with my hands carved away. And I started to reveal a head. I'd never done it before. Huh. I'd never had any training. And even now when I, my father kept it. So when I see it and look back on it, I think, huh, interesting. I, interesting I mean, I as see, in like, this is, I can't believe I got that right. And this is terrible. Like at the same time, like absolutely. both, yeah, absolutely. both extremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For, for, for time and place and where I was at and what my training was, which was null it was nothing yeah uh i'm surprised that i got things as well as i as i did but what i found by doing that also for me was i didn't tire of it i laid next to that block for hours and didn't get didn't tire of of being there so that told me hmm this is i think this is what i want to do i mean this is what what i love so so even huh. those drawings, those African drawings, I had another experience where I'm standing in the gallery with someone viewing them, the white on black, right? And he's looking at them and then looks at me and then looks at the drawing again and says, you're a sculptor. And I didn't have any sculpture in the gallery. And I thought, uh, yeah, well, why would you say that? So, and so with his perception of these drawings, he said, these are very sculptural. If you're working with, say, a block of stone you're working from the highest point of, say, a form, a forehead or whatever it is, and working your way back around that form. And that's precisely what you're doing with those drawings. They're very, I guess, sculptural in that sense, but you have to think very three-dimensionally when doing it. It's an interesting insight because most people who are doing... um, most, Most sculptors, one of their criticisms of somebody who's... And I'm talking about figurative sculptors versus people who are figurative artists is uh, well, the criticism the sculptors have of, of, of painters and people who are, mm-hmm. who are drawing is that they, uh, they don't have to, they can cheat. They can cheat with space. Yeah. They, can, they, can, uh, 
They can remove a shoulder if they don't want to put it in, in the piece. They can deal with foreshortening in other ways. You can't cheat as a sculptor. Right. Because things that look wrong in a sculpture from any angle, you have to be able to address all of those problems from a no matter what angle you come at. Right. And you have a different derivation as, an, as, a, as a sculptor than most people who are working in figurative art in this area, or even that you're competing against. So here you're in, we're, we're here in Utah where we have a lot of figurative artists and sculptors. Many of them gone through a BYU educational program, yeah. right, of illustration. And they've been mentored by people like um, Avard Fairbanks or Ed Froughton or somebody like that. Yeah. And there are a lot of foundries, an unusual number here. How would you describe your education contrast from that with people that are here? Not for better or for worse, just just different. Yeah, I well, yes, I think it's an, it's an interesting injection into this culture that you now live in that you have a different background. Right. And I guess in a way I've always wished that I'd had, you know, there's always that coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? Wish yeah. that I had this education or that, or I would be a little further along if... No, 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 it's not one of those. It's not one of those questions. It's not a question of, you know, what could I've or should always questioned done. that. Yeah. I've, I've always thought, all where great, would I be if? All our, our great artists do, though. Yeah, all great yeah. artists are short themselves because they've got a vision of, of, of what they they always want to push farther, yeah, right? And so sure. that speaks volumes about you that you you want to go keep farther pushing. and you want to keep learning. But my my background really is I'm just I'm more or less I've been on my own. Yeah, uh, and I I gain. I gain an incredible amount of information just by looking. So what are you looking at? You obviously, when I have conversations with you, you know major sculptors mm -hmm. of the past, even those that that are, you know, obscure. We were just talking about a work by Dalu. Yeah. Um, that that you're familiar with Dalu, and you're familiar with with uh, with his work, even as we were talking about. You and I are going to be going to France as part of a group. Yes. And uh, we were. How do you know about Dilu? How do you is is this is all self taught or is this something you feel like came from your education? Just uh, just coming across an, uh, uh, across it uh, on my own, uh, like through books or or maybe uh, online or seeing pieces in museums. Yeah. yeah. So so you're you're always pushing with your education. You're always looking always. autodidact, self taught, looking yeah. around. Yeah. I want to jump into some specific works. First of all, I want to talk about your firefighter monument. Oh yeah, that you do. Okay, mm -hmm. so how old are you when this happens, and how far into the story are we when you are commissioned to do this firefighter monument? Yeah. So by this time, I want to say I'm about thirty-one. Thirty-one years 32, old. Thirty-two. Yeah. Okay, so you've done some solo shows in Arizona. Mm -hmm. You've been doing some standalone sculptures, but is this your first monument? Uh. Well, yes. Well, no, no. So I, I did one other one, but it was only head and, head and shoulders, not even quite okay. a full shoulder. So this is enormous. Give people an idea. It, of yeah. the, so where is it now? It's in, uh, it's in downtown Phoenix. Downtown Phoenix. Yeah. It's a monument to firefighters. How many figures are there in it? There are about nine figures. And it's how big? It is 32 feet long, and the figures are slightly over life size. It is just astounding, and it's it's double sided. And, and you've got a combination of of a relief sculpture yeah. mixed with standalone um, full figures. Right, and up to this point, I haven't sculpted even a full figure 
uh, maybe one or two. So was this just a, a Hail Mary scale. pass that you te- where you you heard about this this monument to firefighters that's going on in yes. Phoenix? You send in a proposal. Yep. And it's a, a drawn proposal or is it some kind of maquette? Well, and the initial proposal is uh, um, uh, just general information about yourself and what you've worked on in the past. I thought I didn't have a chance because I'd only worked on this one other that had some heads, you know, a couple like by I was I think it was seven busts or something like that. So why do you think they picked you other than the conception? Do you think it's you lowballed the, the the what it would cost as part of it, or what no, do you think no. is going and on? So they set the, there's already a, um, a budget set. When yeah. You so get you there. have to work within that you budget. Work within the budget. Uh, and initially they, there's probably 200 submissions and they whittle that down to about a top five. So your initial, your initial, um, the initial, uh, uh, submission is just general information about yourself and past projects. That's pretty much it. I mean, they, they can go and look at your website and see what other work you have. So based on those things alone, they had me come in and I was put up against, uh, you know, four other, uh, senior sculptors from and when I say senior I mean sculptors that have been around for a while and have done other monuments um from California so you're you're doing this and uh you're learning on the uh, in the project as you're doing it Mm -hmm. and I you I remember you telling me a story that you had I was giving a lecture and we were talking about the practical considerations that come into to working with the materials that 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 are required for sculpture and you say you had sculpted this, it gets sent in a truck, and it's melting. Oh, yeah. And you had to re-sculpt it. Yeah. So, so it had been done in clay. Yes. Send it in a truck. Well, so what happened was I, I was part of the housing crisis in, in Arizona. We ended up having to move. It just The timing seemed right, except that it was in the middle of July, right? So it was very hot. So I thought, I, I said to my family, we got to get the trucks packed at night, and then we were going to be out in the morning before the heat hits. Yeah. Um, because the frustration of the project itself too was that I couldn't afford to cut to cast it in Arizona. I yeah. looked, I had looked at other foundries that were near the site, couldn't do it. In frustration, I spoke to a gallery I show with in Santa Fe, and they said, "Look to Utah. Look at Utah for foundries," which I hadn't considered yeah. after that point. But a lot of their artists are casting there, and was able to. Uh, I it was almost. I want to say it was almost a quarter less, even with transport yeah. and installation. And for most projects, the casting is about a third of the cost. And for this, I imagine when you're working for a city project, they're already shorting you on everything. And so what percentage of the cost of this is just casting? Oh, it was at least a third. Yeah. 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 And, but then, then too, the, 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 um, the, the, what is it? The, um, the group that's set up within the city, the, 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 Whatever the council commission the, was, yeah, they said the it was overseeing it. Arts and culture, or something like that. Also take a, a cut. Um, so it was considerably less than a third, I think, at the end of the day. <laughs> but I still, I had this design. I showed it to them. I was dead set on doing it. They said, "We love it. Let's let's find out what it's going to cost." Yeah. And then I figured, oh, when it came time to get getting cost estimates, I realized we couldn't do it here. So we, I said once again to my family, "Well, we're moving. We're moving to Utah." <laughs> Really? Packed up the trucks. The one ha- one truck had filled with everything in our home. The second truck had the monument in it, which I'd already spent months on certain different elements. You know, not completed, but a lot of work. And um, got to St. George, which is great. Parked the truck, spent the night, woke up the next day, and it was going to be hot, so we thought we got to get out early. A block away from the hotel, the truck seizes up, and it's the truck with the monument in it. 
Oh my gosh. So you're talking about a tin box and, and it was, I, I called a uh, budget. I said, we need to figure this out. Like now I need to get another truck. And they've never over. had a call like this. I'm sure there's oh. a sculpture melting in the back. Yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> but even at the same, so, but beyond that, the woman says, well, uh, it, it's a local holiday there. It's, it's pioneer day. And I'm like, oh pioneer my what? Gosh. So the so she said, we're not going to be able to get another truck there for probably four hours. And then beyond that, it's going to be another three hours to get other people to help you move the stuff over. Oh, my gosh. So it's seven hours in the heat in the it middle of the day nightmare. in St. George. We were able to keep our kids. In July. That <laughs> was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So Months of work down, do you, down the drain. Well, okay, so this is a question. I had faces though. melting off. And, uh, and you're probably having an emotional meltdown, right? Yeah, it was, and, uh, it was and, interesting. And I mean, you're pretty calm and collected <laughs> most too. of the time. Most of the time, <laughs> as much as I've known you, um, I don't think anyone would uh, would uh, would be upset knowing it would, would it would everyone would forgive you if you totally flipped out and had a mental breakdown and were like hitting the the truck with a crowbar at this point. <laughs> but you know, there's this old um, John Singer Sargent. You probably heard this story. He would usually sit with a model over two or three times. And at the end of each sitting, it was very common for him to scrape down the entire painting. Mm-hmm. And yes. when and and he he didn't really explain it, but I was listening to an interview with um, uh, Richard Ormond, who's his great nephew and the the yeah, catalog yeah. resume and scholar author yeah. for for um, for him. And his take on this was that was that Sargent was that those first three times before he actually left it on the canvas, he was doing the mental work and that that was more important than the actual manifestation at the end. And all of it manifests itself in the end. So when you get to that point that you're actually rebuilding everything that had melted, Mm -hmm. you'd already made a lot of the choices, right? And when you got there, yes, incredibly frustrated. I'm not trying to minimize any of this, but was it better the second time? Absolutely. I'm glad that it melted. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the the especially the one face that I'd spent so much time on ended up becoming probably three times better. Interesting. Yeah. Was the reception positive of the work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were they were over the moon. I think they they got it within they got it faster than they thought they would. Uh, and the, and the, this is these are their words. That, you know, it was it was yeah. within the budget. It was within the time, and better better quality wise than they thought it would be. What did you learn doing this <laughs> monument that that uh, has stuck with you? I know it's a very broad question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you start one, finish it where you start it. <laughs> don't try and move it. That's one thing. Uh, sculptures don't like, to, especially in clay, don't like to be moved much, especially outside and in hot situations okay uh the other thing i learned um this is a this is a big yeah jump in skills you're demanding of yourself you're working on another arsenal because you're you're working in a different scale yeah you're working with a subject that you didn't necessarily pick but you get to you get to do what you want with that subject within reason Mm -hmm. there were certainly aspects of bringing a low relief to a high relief and then to three three dimensions like, that I had never, you know, I kind of, I, I was envisioning it, but I had never experienced it. And so there were finer points of that and being able to fine tune it and making sure that it was 
that it was going to work, that it was going to translate to the viewer. Did you me- that I you, Did you reach out to any mentors in the process, or did you keep this all close to the vest? It was pretty close to the vest, except that it was being done in the foundry in Lehigh, and so sculptors would come in, and I was more than happy to say, "Hey, check this out. What do you have to say?" You know, and so Blair Buswell came in and saw it and made some suggestions. And this is probably about the time that he's working on the um, Omaha, Nebraska yes. series, which is the largest bronze sculpture in the world. He's working on it with Ed Froten and. Uh, it's a group of sculptors mm-hmm. that are working on these things. So he's probably trying to work his way through some of the same questions you are, which is scale, which is figurative issues. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's pretty skilled, uh, and he certainly had some some great advice, stuff that I remember made a difference. Can you share a couple of them? Um, I think specifically it was what I called the centerpiece. It's on the side, uh, the back side of the wall where two, um, uh, um, what do they call them? They're like first responders are kneeling over a girl that they've pulled from safety, but they're more or less half figures. And so I was trying to get it to look right between a half figure and a full uh, up against this wall. And I don't remember specifically what he said. I, I had to do just to, to do with spatial issues and pointing out a couple of things that could be pushed maybe a little tighter or compressed a little bit more. Interesting. That ended up visually ended up working out to be better. Interesting. Yeah. So what happens after the monument? You're in Utah. You've got this big monument behind you. Mm -hmm. Do you think, okay, I'm a monument guy now? No, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, in in a sense. And then, but the other thing is now what? So, so back to beating bushes. So there are different venues where you can find other monuments, uh, other opportunities online to submit for. So I continued to do that and continued to get, to get different projects across the country. One, I want to, um, We've got about 15 minutes. I've spent a lot of time on, mm-hmm. on the build up to this, and I don't want to miss out on your 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 award winning work that you did at the ARC Salon, the Art Renewal Center Salon that you won a major award for. Um, tell us what that work is. We're going to put it up on the site. Too. Okay. Yeah, the work is called the Reaper. The Reaper, and it is this this um, you know if okay. So can I just give you my take when yes, I please. when I first saw it? Yeah. It was one of these pieces that when I saw it, I thought, um, I thought, who did this and where did they come from? We had never met before at this point. Mm. And um, this occasionally happens when there's an international contest. I will reach out to the artists who did it only to find out that they have an 801 number. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That happened with Camille Corey. That happened with you. That, her- that happened with Aaron, Aaron Harker. That. Yeah. And, and I was shocked at the time. But stylistically, it's one of these things that if you had given it to me, I wouldn't have been able to tell you necessarily when it was made or who made it. It was, it's this idea that it's, it some, seems somewhat like a fantasy piece, mm. but it, it seems very traditional in other aspects. And I can't figure that out. It's, it's this, I guess the, the traditional aspects are the, the subject of it being a reaper, it's figural, it's standalone. Um, it's about the scale of something that I would expect to be a late 19th century work that would maybe be submitted to a salon. But it's also this this old approach to using compositionally drapery in a way that is not very typical of today's work. But that also has a fantasy element. It's this drapery is a hard thing to use compositionally and you seem to have mastered it here. And I was wondering, where did this person come from? Okay, so that's enough of my commentary on yeah. it. My question is, where did this come from, this concept? 
this concept, I, you know, it's uh, a lot of the concepts that I come up with are just a uh, podge. It's a lot of different things um, that I that I come across, that I see, that I hear, that I learn. It's things that make an impact, have an impact on me. This was a design that I had been I've been worked on for years, and one that I was kind of afraid of to approach. I didn't hmm. think I wasn't sure who was going to look at it, who would be taken seriously. Who Is that what it was? It? it wasn't so much the problems needing to be solved. It was more like, who's who am I making it this for? It was my fear of, yeah, it was my fear of spending time on something that would, was this going to be a waste of time? Yeah. Um, but it was so important to me that I, I, I found myself doing multiple sketches of it, multiple uh, on paper drawings. Is that usually well how you start a work is on paper? Yeah. Yeah, but, but I don't typically spend as much time doing different versions and... Um, and then small, smaller maquettes and things like that. Hmm. Um, so what made you jump for it? Was it that it was, did you make it specifically for the salon? No, no. I think I just got to the point where I thought, you know what? This thing has been gnawing at the back of my skull for, for how long? When am I actually ever going to get to the point where I think it's time or that I'm ready to do it? I it wasn't your was the first other thing. It was, it was another, it was a fear of my inability to pull it off, to pull off what it was that I wanted to, to accomplish. And I just thought, when am I ever going to be ready? When am I ever really going to feel like this is the right time? And so I just thought, I don't care if anyone likes it or not. I'm going to do it for me. So I just, I ended up just doing it for myself. I don't think I've ever talked to you about the symbolic meaning behind the Reaper, but I, I wonder, even as you're talking about it, was it, con was, were your concerns about it, or was your, was the concept for this mainly about the symbolism or mainly about the aesthetic of the difficulty of doing it or was it a combination of these I, things? I think a combination, but so, mostly the symbol. So mostly, mostly the, the symbol? So yeah. what is it about the, the symbol? Usually the Reaper's a man. Yeah. Usually it's the Grim Reaper we think of and not necessarily an agricultural Reaper, which is a very traditional subject within, yeah. Yeah. within, within sculpture, at least within the past couple hundred years. W what is the Reaper about? Do you mind sharing? No, no. I guess it's about the idea that, uh, because again, you know, the concept of the Reaper is, is, for centuries, it's been kind of a symbol of, of fear, maybe even a manipulative one, um, a way to manipulate people into, you know, scaring them into doing the right thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. But usually depicted as a very masculine skeleton and a cowl. And so, I mean, I, I've seen other artists represent the, uh, kind of the death in another, in this kind of a similar way. Um, so for me, I just thought, you know, I, I think if we understand death, and I can't speak from experience because I've not, you know, I've not passed away myself. Right. But but my... And maybe not had an illness that's taken you to the edge or, of it. Or right, right. Or, yeah, it's not a near-death experience or anything like that. It's just my, just my upbringing, things that I've been taught, the things, the way that I feel, my feeling is that it's something that's not to be feared. And if we understand it, it's very simple. It's, uh, And not, that's not to say that the methods of way the way some people pass away are not great. I mean, fun. I'm not, not so. This piece is not to, to focus on the suffering or how how uh, yeah. people die, but but the at the moment at which there's a crossing over is calm and beautiful and hmm. uh, very um, nurturing, which is why I thought the woman especially is is a great symbol for that, and also maybe hmm. a, a new birth. I mean, women women are the only ones that can can give new life. So I think wow. maybe death is a bit like that. You know, that reminds me, for, I've got a, a poem by Walt Whitman called, um, and a child said unto me, fetch, said to me, fetching a leaf of grass, what is this? And he says, I don't know what it is. And 
paraphrasing it, which is a terrible thing to do with Whitman. <laughs> he says, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the handkerchief of the Lord. Maybe it's the, uh, the hair of, of women and children who have been, and, and men, um, old and young. And he says, um, and if that's true, then this grass is a testament that there is no such thing as death, that all goes onward and upwards, and that the death is just the beginning of a new of new life. Right. And um and and it it uh, he talks about it like it being a new birth, and that brings that brings a whole nother meaning to the sculpture for me, and it makes me wonder why um, people haven't made death a woman before why it is always that imposing male figure now there is um i mean there are several other pieces that uh have inspired it inspired that um there is that sculpture in the met um with death that stays the hand of the sculptor oh that's right and it is the female in in the cloak yes and it's beautiful and i just thought wow that's just fantastic but what you mentioned about that in the poem, the, this, um, the idea of, of death being not something that is a, you know, you've, your physical body goes literally, I mean, literally set down goes, uh, but, um, but it is an uplifting, uh, an, uh, a beautiful, uh, what was, I can't remember exactly what you said or how you said it, but I tried to convey the idea that death is a positive by, by having the sort of unnatural otherworldly lifting of her, her robe. Hmm. So it's not, it's it's not even so much a windblown cloak as it is yeah. a kind of this sort of like you said before like I uh, used the word um, fantasy sort of like a floating and this work goes to the art renewal salon which has several thousand figurative artists from around the world and mm -hmm. landscape artists and others and it's largely considered the most important contemporary figurative art competition in the world and it wins top prize and you go to you go to it gets shown in New York and then it gets shown in Barcelona yeah. Uh, did did you immediate when that happened, and you're spending time with these other major figures who are in the world um, of this figurative world? Um, to me, it seems like an absolute natural fit. But were these people that you had known beforehand and you'd had relationships with? Uh, many of them, no. Yeah. And the relationships, no, no, except for like you know Walter Rain. I think he was there in Barcelona. I bumped into yeah. Vern Swanson, but he's—I mean—he's not one of the artists. But, um, but no, no, just just maybe maybe uh, just by way of, again, you know, the way I've learned how to create the art that I'm creating now is just by looking looking online and you know, finding one other of, things. One of these things about the Art Renewal Salon that I yeah. think is interesting is that it's. It's 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 attempt is um, just with the title art renewal is this idea of looking back at the past mm -hmm. and trying to bring back this traditional approach to art. But in reality, they've got a lot of artists from a lot of different backgrounds that don't necessarily share the same um, megalithic and, and shared view of what traditional art is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some of them aren't even interested in it being traditional. Some of them are interested in fantasy art. Yeah. Some of them, what seems to unite them is that they're interested in representational work right. for the most part, whether that's landscapes or, yeah. or, or the figure in, in general. Or it's, and, but it does seem to be a craft perspective. And I'm always interested when I meet people who have won awards in this and then become figureheads. They feel like, 
like, oh, all of a sudden you are an artist who believes in these things and you're against modernism and you're against all. And, and it doesn't seem to be true of everyone, right? Yeah. You can't necessarily be pigeonholed once you are a part of that group. But it, there does seem to, at the same time, be a kind of shared... What is it? I guess the question I'm getting to is, did you feel like you were part of a tribe when you joined, when you, when you, when you won that? Or did it still feel like a loose confederation? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was a mix. It was a yeah. little bit of a mix. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, and I forget, is it, um, oh, the name, his name escapes me now, but, uh, but the gentleman that's, that's over the art renewal center. Fred, Fred Ross. Fred. Fred Ross and Kara, who's his daughter, yes, who's yes. taking so over the reins. Very, very nice people. Very, you know, and Fred is very, um, articulate, but, um, I remember thinking when, because he's very adamant about oh, yeah. what real art is. And, and so. And Diehard traditionalist, anti modernist. And I don't know if I wholeheartedly agree with everything he was saying. And, but at the same time, as I was sitting there, I'm thinking, you're going through, it's this 10 pages of, you're, you're talking, you're, pre you're preaching to the crowd is like, you're killing us. You know, can you just. <laughs> well, it's, it's <laughs> it a little over. It's interesting. There was this article that, it, to me, it is at least, that was pointed out to me by Paul Monson, who is an architect that graduated mm. from Notre Dame. And he now does temples for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he also does these. Um, these he's also works with the Institute of Classical Art and Architecture, which is a non, which is a secular organization interested in teaching traditional approaches to architecture and art. And he'd sent me this article that was written by the Philadelphia Inquirer about the Philadelphia Temple, huh. and it won a major design award. And the Philadelphia Inquirer is one of the few few newspapers in the country that has a dedicated architectural critic wow. and this person was a modernist came uh, is is herself considers herself a, a fan of the Bauhaus and um, and minimalism but is interested in craft and the article's title was this is the new revolution the new revolution is classicism uh -huh. and she said not necessarily because it's new ideas but because it is brazenly for traditionalism in a world that has embraced modernism yes this is the new zeitgeist and the new revolution, and and uh, and the new radicalism she uses as an approach, and it seems like Fred Ross and a lot of the people that founded the art renewal system still feel like they are in the minority, and that they are that modernism owns all controls all the levels of power within the art world. But I think that what it doesn't quite take into account is that there are still bastions of traditionalism that never received modernism. So Western art, religious art, portraiture. These have all been been stubbornly traditionalist for uh -huh. a long time, and and that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It just is, right? And and their language is very defensive, but um, but uh, your work, I thought it was just it, it, it's interesting that that there is when you get involved in that world and you then like you win a major award, you're now considered one of the tastemakers, one of the figureheads. And what you went and did afterwards, and maybe if I'm, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, is you've done a series of works that treat Adam and Eve mm -hmm. as subjects. And it's the first few works that I saw, at least, were smaller panels that were in low relief. And now you've got two very large panels yeah. that are in um, from ball to high relief that come out of these, these very large panels of Adam and Eve. And um, I want to know where your preoccupation for Adam and Eve came from. Is it is it an LDS thing? Because it's a it's a Western world tradition. Yeah. But 
But I would have to say that Mormons in general have a different take on it than the rest of Christianity or Islam. Yeah, they do. do yeah, it. or Judaism. So the first, uh, the first panels that you mentioned, the first pieces were smaller panels, and yeah. they, they were um, they're actually named White Fruit. Yeah. So they more so. I, I wasn't really going for Adam and Eve, except that you see figures and they're nude, uh, male and female. So maybe that says more about me because I said Adam and Eve. Well, that's right? why no, as a Mormon. But still, I mean, um, non-Mormon or non, uh, I've had other people. That's what they see it, and that they immediately think that. I mean, okay. why wouldn't you? Nude figures, yeah. man and woman, tree, fruit. Yeah. It's, okay. Yeah. 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 So sorry, I interrupted. No, yeah. no, yeah. you're totally fine. So I, I just, I, but. So I think they are Adam and Eve, but not, I mean, they're really meant, meant to represent more of us who are sons and daughters of. So I, I think, you know, we're all products of our upbringing and surroundings and religion, religious, you know, upbringing and um, uh, circumstance. So I, I uh, there's definitely some of that, but they're really, even the Adam and Eve that were more specifically Adam and Eve were really, because um, they are the, the ultimate archetypes, right? They sort of represent all of us. Humanity. These are this they're, they're just that's the and theme. that's how we use them in the church often is they are we are them. Yes. We're the, the choices they made are the same choices we make. Right. Right. And that's that is sort of the overarching theme I think throughout my work is that is this um, universal human uh, message of what we experience in our in our lives as human beings. Doesn't matter the time, doesn't matter the place, the creed, the religion. And so I think I really that's why, you know, when you talked about the not being able to place the Reaper, I think in a sense I'm as I'm creating, as I'm sculpting any piece, I'm really I really uh I really uh what do you like wrestle with myself to keep it to keep pushing it in a direction that is um that doesn't have a time or place. If that makes you, do sense. you have an uh, an ideal viewer in mind for it, or are you the viewer? I think maybe I am, yeah. but, but I really want it to be something that has, uh, you know, an emotional impact on, on on anyone who views it. So my again, yeah. my 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 thought <clears throat> is, we're we're so connected. I believe that we're so interconnected as a human family that we, um, that the things that I try to say and do and create would be something that would. Uh, uh, that that uh, doesn't matter the person, the the time, or their background. It would be something that they could relate to, something that they could identify with, or have some emotional impact by by viewing. I have a a really kind of you know I, I'm almost embarrassed to ask it because it's a lame question on some level, but but I'll ask it after I tell you a story which I've already told you before, but mm. but I haven't shared with many other people. So we you, we have two versions that were in the gal the, in the gallery that that I was I was there for somebody witnessing both of them, and this is a an LDS woman of some means, and she was also um, somebody who was writing a book on Adam and Eve, and I don't know to what level of seriousness or scholarship is, and when she um, when she saw this the 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 first one, it was your larger later version, the most recent, yeah, and it has. Adam facing us, yeah, and it has Eve away, and you can see part of her her breast from the side, and the woman said, "Oh, that's not that that's that's not what Eve was like," and I said, "What is it?" And she said, uh, "Sexually attractive. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about sex. 
That's not what the interpretation is. And then we get to the next version of it, which had Eve facing away, and you see her back, which is a smaller, earlier version you'd done. And it had the man facing forward, and he had a six-pack. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd push on her a little bit with her interpretation. And I said, well, you know, now I'm looking at the, at the man in this version, and he's quite attractive with that six-pack. And she said... Micah, you can't sexualize men, but you can sexualize women. Yeah. Which is obviously a kind of nonsense on that level. But what isn't nonsense, which is a real issue, and this is the question I was going to ask, is people who, if you're treating a religious subject, where even if the tradition is nudity, Adam and Eve are Mm -hmm. fundamental, because nudity, nakedness, is used explicitly in the scriptures on a symbolic level and maybe on a practical level of what is their 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 situation is but it is is always to an audience that has an issue with nudity and and I personally don't have that issue but the moment you take on Adam and Eve you take on that as an issue you have to address mm-hmm. so my overall question is as you tackle nudity and as you've had experience with people addressing it especially the nude female form as a male sculptor. What are some of the considerations that you have when you're making it? Or do you just say, you know what? I'm just going to go with what feels right to the making of the sculpture. Yeah. What do you do? How do you address that? Well, I try and stay away from anything that appears to have a, um, a contemporary sensualism. I mean, you, all you have to do is open a magazine and, and see how figures are posed. So I try and stay with very classical poses, very and, and even this, the the figure, like you say, she was turned away. I try to make her as little, as, as, like as less, you know, little sexual as possible. No, no, um, I, I wasn't going for anything sensual at all. And so it surprised me when you said that that was her reaction. I thought, well, maybe it's a problem that she has. Well, you had said something to me. I hope you don't mind me quoting you at the mm-hmm. time, where you quoted the Proverbs verse that said that. All things are pure to those who are pure. Correct. And and that is a fairly damning explanation of of of, of our contemporary culture and yeah. how we see nudity. Yeah. Right? I mean, it is understandable. We're we're compl- we're way over sexualized in our in our yeah. current you know. Uh, so I I do say that to some people, maybe to put them in their place, and it shuts <laughs> them up a little bit. It's a great it's a great yeah. statement. I feel condemned slightly when I see that, when I hear that too, because I think, you know, I am a man of the time that we live in where sure, we all it's hard not it. to be, to see things in a sexual Absolutely. way. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. So no, I was just going to say, anytime I approach the figure, female figure, if it's female or more male figure in the nude, I try to be very, not to do anything sensual, not to put them in a provocative uh, pose, but to pose them with, with a lot of respect, more in a repose, a quiet, reflective moment. Um, and with the utmost respect for the human figure and even a reverence for, so that, for the form. When you, you took these works to Scottsdale when you went, right? Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with a, you know, largely not, you're with a largely American audience. And so you're still dealing with a Western audience, but not a predominantly Mormon one. Right. How did their reaction to the pieces differ from those that you've heard here locally? Um, if at all. Yeah, not much. Not much. Because there was a mix. You know, mm-hmm. I think I may have had 
one or two small families with small children where the parents were kind of covering their faces as they walked by my space. It's interesting because they're not, like you say, there's nothing explicitly or, or there's nothing purient, overtly sexual about right. them. There's nothing that's suggestive. Um, that's that's interesting. Mm. And but it's, a, it's a larger issue that I think we haven't adjust, addressed in our culture. Yeah, no. I, I, I guess I, we're, we're running down, out of time. But I do want to ask this question since we're coming full scale back to Scottsdale, which is you know, you've you've now done you've now done gallery work. You've done um, um, you've done monuments. You continue to do monuments and we haven't gotten to that. And I think we're going to come back to you for this monument that you're doing that go, is going in Washington, D.C. That's a World War One memorial that's historic that you're yeah. part of a team for. So we'll hold on to that yeah. conversation another time. Mm -hmm. And. You've you've uh, won major international competitions, um, and that's we only talked about the one work, but you've placed multiple times with the with the ARC and with other uh, competitions. And you come to Scottsdale, and you take this religious work to Scottsdale, and you kind of you're in residence in Scottsdale, and you not only have that, but you have uh, a sculptural fountain that you've done, which is which is technically an achievement on multiple levels. <laughs> And we'll put an image of that up. But I guess the question I have is, um, you're, you're, you're still probably young in your career. You've got several years ahead of you. What did you get from Scottsdale and where are you going to now with this experience? What, I, what came to you from the Scottsdale experience that's now working its way into your work? I think it's a continuation of what, you know, the things that have been... I'm a little slow at times. I, I guess well, I, I should, you know, I shouldn't be mean to myself, but now be nice to, to be nice to my friend Tyson. I think that, uh, like most artists, we have these, you know, we uh, we have um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, we're worried. We're we have a lot of fears, um, and uh, but I think the one thing that keeps getting hit home is that I need to go with with my gut because I think the pieces that I've created for the show that were more of a knee, a knee jerk reaction, something that, or, or something that was really important to me that I wanted to do like the Reaper. There was another piece that I did, which was a, just a knee jerk reaction piece. And there were multiple people interested in that and bought it. And it was a one off. It was kind of a, a, a neat little piece. Um, I keep receiving this message that I need to need to focus on those things and not, not think too much about what it is I think the market wants. It's an interesting question because I think a lot of artists do struggle with this about what whether or not their own works are marketable and what they need to do. And who am I? Who who is yeah. it that I want to say that I am? Those are things that I kind of continue to struggle with. Think, you know, I'm reaching don't, don't you for think something. Everybody does. Yeah. I and even so. if they have found a marketable place, they think, oh, is that who I, that's all I want to be? Yeah. The more I talk to artists, the more I find that, that that's sort of everyone's uh, lament. I, I do find, though, that there are different ways that artists address it. So there are people like Walter Rain, who has deliberately isolated himself and does not show his work to other artists because he doesn't want to have a conversation about it because he wants to be just true to his personal expression. And he's hmm. very explicit about that. Or people like Justin Wheatley, who stylistically is very different than you. He's an artist who works mainly in acrylic and and does architectural um, work with with figure. And but I just interviewed him for 15 years. He's part of this group that once a month meets and shows their works and critiques each other's work. Huh. 
and you live in an area where there are a lot of artists around you. So, you know, if I just had to make that that very like and, and maybe it's you're not purely one animal or the other, but if, if somebody who works in isolation or somebody who's always having a conversation with other artists, where do you fit in the spectrum? I think it's good to have time on your own. Um, and yet my experience has been that I have uh, been able to do more, do, do better work when I've had feedback, hmm. when I've had other artists chiming in and saying, hey, what about this or what about that? Is it mainly artists that you trust? Um... I, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty laid back. I like to get feedback from just about everyone. So especially with a show like this one in Scottsdale, yeah. from a marketing standpoint, I got to know what's speaking to people and what's yeah. not. And you're probably looking around the show with people who've been there for 15 or 20 years and you're thinking, is this my future? Mm-hmm. No, right? yeah, yeah. Do I want to go in their direction because that's working? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I get, sometimes I get mixed messages and it's very, it can be a little, you know, it still leaves me asking questions. Well, whatever direction you go in, I mean, yeah. I'm absolutely confident. You just seem to be one of these these figures who, whatever you put your mind to, you're successful at it, even if you feel frustration in the process of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And um, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to sit down with you at this point in your career. I'm hoping that we'll have multiple opportunities, especially we'll talk about this World War One monument that you've been a part of, and we'll have an update for you. Fa- fair take that we can Found, come sit yeah, down with fantastic. you again and talk? Please, yeah. Thank you so much, Tyson, for sitting down with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank Tyson Snow for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see works that we discussed and see past interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars on our website, zionartsociety.org. That's zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. Thank you for listening. I'm Micah Christensen. (laughs) ¶¶